You're listening to Further Faster in association with Montaigne, the podcast that asks ultra athletes, mountaineers, and explorers the why and the how. Hello, and welcome to the latest Further Faster podcast in association with Montaigne. My name's Daniel Nielsen. So, all stories have a beginning, they have a middle, and they have an end. But in this episode, unusually, we're starting at the end and working our way backwards. You see, the story of Australian Steve Plain starts off pretty impressively, climbing all the highest mountains in each of the seven continents in only four months with mountaineer John Gupta, and raising money on the way. But as we travel backwards through the story, it just gets more and more jaw-dropping. It's also a story that will inspire, especially when you realise that less than five years ago, Steve had never climbed a mountain. So we caught up with him in his hometown of Perth, Australia, to dig into how this record attempt came about, what kept him going through all the dark times, and the moment that changed his life forever. Listen in. Okay, so here I'm with Steve Plain. Um, Steve's done, uh, just completed a a remarkable project called the Seven in Four project. Um, First of all, tell us where you are right now. Uh, currently, just back at home in Perth, in uh, in Western Australia. Okay, and uh, you, you, you're in, you're at home, are you? Yeah, that's all right. So it's a Friday evening over here. So mm-hmm. we got back after Project Seventy Four. Uh, we completed in mid May, mm-hmm. and so just been back in Australia for a couple of weeks, enjoying enjoying some sunshine and some relatively warmer weather compared to where we uh, were for the previous months. Yeah, sure. So okay, we we're going to attack this in a slightly different way than we normally have done in the past. We're going to start more recently and then kind of work maybe work back through your life really and and find out so because this is one of those stories that remarkably just gets more interesting the further back <laughs> more remarkable the further back you go so first of all what is the 74 project so project 74 was something uh a project i set myself a personal challenge a few years back mm-hmm. and basically in in short mm-hmm. uh 74 was my goal to climb the seven summits being the highest mountain on each of the seven continents Okay. In under four months, mm-hmm. and uh, in the process, aiming to beat the uh, previous world record for doing it for the fastest time, which was previously 126 days. Right. Okay. And um, so, what, what was what, what were the seven mountains? So seven mountains, seven summits, the highest on each continent. Mm-hmm. So we started in Antarctica, mm-hmm. uh, with the highest down there is Mount Vincent. Yeah. From there, went to South America, uh, and the highest there back in Cagua. Yeah. Then round to Africa and climb Kilimanjaro. Then to um, Australasia and climb Karstens Pyramid. Okay, where's and that? And two seven summits. Loose. Right. Where's the pyramid? Sorry? Where's Karstens Pyramid? Karstens Pyramid is actually in West Papua, which is a province of Indonesia. So a really remarkable place, mm-hmm. uh, very remote and uh, some, you know, going up in the jungles up there. It was uh, absolutely fascinating. I bet, I bet. Yeah, so then with the seven summits list, there's two versions. So one classifies Australasia as a continent, so we climb Karstens. Mm-hmm. The other one cl- classifies Australia as a continent uh, with the highest being Kosciuszko. So we did that also. Okay. And then after Australia, went to Elbrus, to uh, highest for Europe, which is Elbrus. Mm-hmm. Then to North America and climbed Denali up in Alaska. And then most recently just finished off with the summit of Everest. Right, blimey. And uh, out of those... Obvious question, but which of which of those were the most challenging? The most challenging, far and away, uh, everyone sort of thinks 
of Everest being the most challenging. Now, obviously, it's the highest, and you've got a lot of altitude to deal with. Uh, but for, for this specific project and the time frame we're trying to target in, um, by far and away the most challenging was Denali. Right. Okay. So to achieve the time frame of under four months meant we were summiting uh, El Bruce and Denali out of season. So Denali, when we went in there, it was end of winter, uh-huh. uh, early spring, and uh, for four months. Uh, sorry, and for 17 days, expedition took us. Were the first ones in this season, right. and so got no one had been in since the season shut down last year, and we we're the first team in. Uh, there's a small team of four of us, um, and for 17 days we're the only ones on the hill in wow. some really really challenging conditions. So um, extremely cold and extremely remote, and having to be fully self-sufficient. So that was, yeah, by far and away uh, the, the toughest out of all the seven. Right. Okay. I mean, it can be a, a rough mountain. I think people. Maybe tend to underestimate it. I know you, I've heard all sorts of kind of as many disasters on on Denali as as any other mountain. Really, it's a tough place. What what um so what what was yeah, so right. what was so challenging about it? For us, and like you say, it is often underestimated. And even the climbers in season, and uh, you know the season's actually going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. And even for climbers in season, um, it only has about a fifty percent summit success rate. So in season, it's even very very low success rate. Um, but the most challenging for us was obviously the time of year we did it when it was you know going in in March yeah. and just the extreme temperatures and the uh, and the weather you get at that time of year made yeah. it incredibly difficult compared to a normal in season climb. Plus, obviously, all the additional aspects of climbing out of season, uh, having a fully self supported trip, so being mm-hmm. the only ones on the mountain, so having to look after ourselves the whole way. Yeah. Um, had myself John Gupta, who's a um, with Montaigne and yeah, yeah. two other yeah. two John's friends as well came across. So we had a small team of four, which was fantastic, a great number. And thankfully, um, we thankfully we were successful. It was a summer day itself. We had been pinned down a storm for three days, hadn't been able to leave the tent for three days, and the weather was continued to for, was forecast to stay bad for at least another week. And there was this one little lull in the storm of 24 hours. So. Yeah. We had to attempt the summit from a low, low, one of the lower camps, which okay. resulted in a very long summit day right. in a very extreme conditions. But, um, all went really well. Excellent. And so, for for you personally, what were the the moments on that mountain where you may have thought we're not going to do it, or I'm not sure I'm up to this, or you know, were, were, were there those low <laughs> moments? Yeah, there always was, and I think for us. When we set out on our summit day, we set out from what they call 14 k camp or 14,000 14, feet. And uh, myself and John uh, set off that day. The other two were less – myself and John had the benefit of being pre-acclimatised, coming off El Bruce, yeah. and we're moving quite well. So with a narrow window, we thought we'd give it an attempt. Um, weren't too sure how we'd get. We were trying to target the summit at around about 6 p.m. Yeah. So we left camp early morning, and 6 p.m. was still several hours off the top. And I guess it was probably that point when we're – yeah, we're moving slowly. It was getting late. The sun was going down, mm-hmm. and um, that was probably the real point. Where we were sort of thinking, you know, how how far can we keep pushing it into the night, yeah, and still uh, get safely? And I guess I can remember one moment there on the hill where uh, we're climbing. Just myself and John roped up together, and John actually uh, we paused, came together for a bit, just for a quick break, and mm-hmm. uh, it would have been sort of late afternoon. When, and then John just said, "Look, if we keep pushing up, do you have enough in you to get back down?" Right. And um, you know, that was a real decision point. And yeah. I guess the most critical, do we have enough in us to get back down? And 
Uh, myself and John, I think we both sort of felt comfortable that while we were pushing the limits, mm-hmm. um, we both uh, could, could keep pushing through throughout the night. So it was really at that point there, I think, was yeah, definitely the most decisive moment of the whole project. And it took us another – we didn't summon it until uh, a quarter to 10, right. so 9.45 p.m., Yeah, um, about minus five on the top and uh, dark by that stage. So uh-huh. we definitely uh, pushed it very hard and yeah, got back to camp by 5 a.m. the following morning. Blimey, climbing through the night. Um, so, what was your what's the relationship with John Gupta? What, how do you, how did you get to know him? And you know, because obviously he's familiar to he's familiar to us and and, and lots of Brits. Um, he's a Montane athlete as well. What what? How did you get involved with him, or how did you become friends or climbing partners? Yeah, I first um, <laughs> first met John on a, um, I guess prior to starting Project Seventy Four, these seven summits, I'd actually never done any mountaineering. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've done a lot of other outdoor activities here in Australia, but hadn't done any mountaineering. Yeah, and yeah. so I embarked on a bit of a training. This is why this story is so good. Road. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not not every day you sort of just wake up having with no mountaineer experience, thinking I'll try it, do a seven summits world record. No, but no. <laughs> uh, that is literally what I do. So we, I set about uh, doing a number of practice expeditions. Mm-hmm. Um, start out in New Zealand doing an introductory mountaineering course down there. And then had a month's climbing in Peru with a guide over there. Then it was actually on my third trip when I climbed Amada Blam in Nepal. And on that trip, John was – it was a trip with Tim Mosdale, led okay. the expedition. Yep, yep, yep. But John was the guide with, for my group, and I acclimatized quite early. And so it just happened to be myself and John climbed together on summit day um, right. ahead of the rest of the group. And so had a couple of nights up high together and climbed together that day and um, got on fantastically. So – we were actually in a pub after we got back to Kathmandu in a pub after we'd summoned Amit Blam and I just said to John, how do you fancy a winter ascent of Denali? And uh, <laughs> I think he thought it was a bit crazy at the time. I said, why the hell would you want to climb Denali in winter? Yeah. And then I guess explained what the whole project was. And yeah, from that stage, he was fully on board. And to be honest, I couldn't have done the project without him. So it was, it was an awesome time. Was it, um, so many questions, was it... Uh... I mean, he's obviously well. He's clearly more experienced than than, than you were. It, was it? I mean, experience is one thing, but there, there must have been something else in your relationship that clicked that that made you able to climb well together. What do you think that was? Yeah, I think obviously we both got on very well um, right from the beginning. So, um, you know, in terms of a friendship, we sort of kicked it off quite early, and um, we could tolerate each other and you know, in climbing and you know and particularly what we've done sort of four months together on the road in tents in some very tight conditions is quite challenging. So yeah. we got on quite together from that perspective. But I think what probably kicked it off was um, when we're climbing together on Amada Blam, while John is obviously much more experienced than I am and um, and the wealth of experience that he bought the project was immense. Yeah. Um, but we both climbed it. John's incredibly fast on the mountain as well. Okay. And uh, we both climbed at a fairly similar pace and um, could both sort of move well together in the mountains at you know, a um, similar pace. So while John has the uh, technical expertise, uh, when it came to sort of the physical endurance aspect, we both moved quite well together. Mm-hmm. And I think that was sort of really crucial that, um, yeah, just being a similar pace and being able to move together efficiently in the mountains yeah. uh, was how we sort of paired up. Okay, okay. Um, and then tell us about Everest. Was that was that a reasonably straightforward ascent? It, yeah, Everest was, to be honest. Um, you know, people sort of make Everest out to be, uh, you know, great big massive um, ordeal. Mm-hmm. But by the time we'd been through Denali and got to Everest, 
uh, even my, myself and John were joking at times. I think we're up at Camp 4 getting ready to go for the summit. It was probably about minus 30 uh, that night going yeah. for the summit of Everest. And we're just joking how balmy it was and how nice <laughs> and pleasantly warm it was right. <laughs> compared to where it comes from. So um, I, this part of another one of my practice trips uh, before I started Project 74, mm-hmm. I did Lhotse yeah. last year. So Lhotse shares the same route as Everest up um, to just below the Geneva Spurs, just below Camp, th- Camp 4. Mm-hmm. So I'd seen most of the route before. I'm fairly familiar with uh, the conditions. So once we got to Everest, you know, went um, had a fair bit of confidence uh, for that climb. Sure, sure, sure. So, I mean, we we talk about. I mean, we talk about this kind of frame of reference where you may have achieved or you've gone through tougher things on Denali than Everest. Therefore, Everest seemed a bit more straightforward. Now, you've managed to pack a career's worth of climbing in those four months. I mean, the the, the difference between, or maybe when you started these practice climbs on Amadabla and also on Lotsi, do you think that your progression has been markedly different? Has it just been compacted time or are there other kind of issues that come along with that as well? Um, you say markedly different compared to other climbers? Yeah, or? other climbers that have spent 20 years working their way up to Lotsey or, you know, those big 8,000 metres. Yeah, and I peaks. guess where my progression's probably been somewhat different is I guess a lot of climbers uh, may start out, particularly like in the UK, start out with a lot of... Uh, general rock climbing and other sort of winter climbing on lower altitude climbs, um, which you have a lot of close, you know, in your backyard in the UK. Yeah. Um, there's not too much over here for us, unfortunately, no, in Australia. Not in Perth. But um, while I didn't have the technical climbing experience, um, I'd spent a lot of time outdoors, done a lot of trekking, camping, um, self-supported remote hikes um, in some quite wilderness areas in Australia. And I think equally as important on the big hills is just a general ability to look after yourself mm-hmm. in remote conditions. Um, obviously, you need the technical climbing aspect, but an ability just to be able to look after yourself, you know, keep hydrated, keep warm, just do all the sort of personal admin things, yeah. uh, I think is equally, if not more important, for the success on the big climbs. Mm-hmm. And so I think my, my background from that uh, put me in pretty good stead and sort of meant I was able to compress a lot of high-altitude climbs in a fairly short period of time uh, in the lead-up to this project. Right, okay. And I told you we're going about this completely uh, backwards. What, 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 what's the future? This is the question I normally ask at the end, but what, what's the future hold? I mean, how, how old are you? I'm 36, okay. uh, almost 37, actually. So. Oh, okay. Happy birthday um, yeah. coming up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so what are the, what, what's the next kind of uh, plan that you've hatched? Uh, I guess for myself, you know, a lot of people sort of thought, you know, Project 74, Seven Summits, and that'll be it. Mm-hmm. But for myself, it's just been an amazing journey, and it hasn't been about just doing the you know, Seven Summits record. Just the whole experience the whole way along. Um, mm-hmm. Just loved every minute of it and just loved being in the hills. So definitely want to get back out and do some climbing in the very near future. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the immediate um, immediately it's straight back to work. I'm actually a uh, by trade i'm an engineer okay okay um so go back to work full-time work and earn some money again yeah Uh, but myself and john started talking about uh some more himalayan climbing next year hopefully so a few uh a few more high attitude challenging climbs which uh i said the seven summers is fantastic but not all of them are over you know some of them you know pretty basic yeah and um just high attitude treks really so hopefully get back to himalayas and do some uh some nice challenging peaks over there okay um did you complete the <clears throat> did you complete the challenge 
did you become the fastest people? Seven, seven. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we did. So 14th of, it was 14th of May. We stood on the top of Everest. We stopped the clock and uh-huh. we completed the seven summits in uh, 117 days. Right. So it took um, nine days off the previous record. Okay. Congratulations. Okay. So this is where it gets, I mean, it's fascinating so far, but this is where it gets really, really amazing. Where were you the moment that you hatched the idea for this project? Yeah, and I guess that, I say, probably the interesting one or the probably more insane aspect of it was that not only did I have no mountaineering experience, um, at the time I was actually lying in hospital with a broken neck and after I um, got dumped in a wave just body surfing in in a local beach over here in Perth and uh, broke my neck on impact and got taken to hospital and I guess it was in the days where lying in hospital staring at the ceiling that uh, the concept for Project 74 came about. Okay. You were surfing, just chilling out on the beach, and it was it was a freak accident, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was, uh, well, I wasn't even actually surfing, so I've just just body surfing. So okay. I literally, just tried to swim onto the wave uh, and just body surf a wave into the shore, mm-hmm. and um, just a small shore dumping wave, and uh, got it terribly wrong. Went head and uh, just got tumbled and went head first in, and um, I don't remember a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I can remember trying to swim onto the wave, and then. Upon impact, I was not unconscious. Yeah. And then when I came to, I was still in the water and still couldn't breathe. And initially, just felt dazed and disorientated. And it wasn't until I tried to move my arms to um, take a breath mm-hmm. that my arms were paralyzed. And that's when I realized it was uh, quite a bit worse. And I guess very thankfully, there were two volunteer surf lifesavers uh, on the on the scene at the time. And um, had it not been for them, you know, they came down and applied all the right spinal precaution measures mm-hmm. and got me out of the water without exacerbating the injuries. And the doctors sort of said, I'd, I had... Who, who were they? Let's name check them. Do you know? Did you, do you know their names? Uh, often, sometimes often you don't know their names of people who have rescued you, 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 you don't know. But do you know You know who it is? Yeah, no, we've, kept, we've kept in touch and they've been amazing and provide support right through this project as well. Yep. So it's Lara and Gary Mattia, okay. um, so father and daughter from the Cottesloe Surf Life Saving Club over here. Mm-hmm. And so they did an awesome job. And then the, because I had unstable fractures, uh, the doctor said, had there been any further movement to my neck, it could have uh, resulted in permanent paralysis. Right. Uh, but the obviously the measures they took and got me straight onto a spinal board and uh, kept my neck very stable was uh, paramount in the, in the long-term recovery that I was able to achieve. Yeah. So w- when was this? When did this happen? That was the 13th of December, 2014. So... Right, yeah, three and a half years ago. Wow, not long ago at all. Not long ago at all. Um, so, then, how long were you in hospital for? I was in. So I went, got an ambulance straight to one hospital, and they weren't able to treat me there. Didn't have the, um, didn't have the expertise. So I had an emergency transfer to set to Royal Perth Hospital, mm-hmm. and I was in Royal Perth Hospital for there were a number of consultants, um, specialists consulting on my case, and took five days. Initially, they wanted to operate. Right. Uh, to fuse the vertebrae to stop any further movement, yeah. uh, which would have resulted in loss of movement in my neck. And thankfully, there are a lot of other complications, had a lot of ligament damage and other issues, which they said made the operation um, a little bit too complex. So they opted after five days, put me in a halo brace, which is an external fixation device. Right. Um, incredibly painful to have fitted because it's literally having screws put into your head. Oh, my gosh. And okay. uh, then uh, it was another week after that that I was able to get up and start... Um, start mobilizing again in hospital all up. It was um, a bit under two weeks. Once I had the halo brace on, they were keen for me to get up and get moving as quick as I could. 
Yeah. And then had that on for another four months where I was in and out of hospital continuously for four months, um, getting checkups with this halo. Then had another two months in a soft neck collar before I was able to start proper rehab. So it was six months uh, in total before I started getting to any um, any proper rehab. Okay, and this halo, it sounds like a medieval torture device. You, you basically, you, you had screws put into your head and then you just couldn't move. Is that right? That's right. So the halo is literally a metal ring which goes around the top of the head. Yeah. And there's four screws that go in on each quarter um, yeah. and literally screw in the skull, oh um, which affixes the, the uh, ring to the head. And then there's four bars that come down off the halo that mm-hmm. connect, that screw down into a, um, a solid vest which goes around your chest. And so that sort of completely mobilizes uh, in fixing the from the head to the chest, fully immobilizes the neck to allow the uh, allow the neck to heal. Obviously, with other breaks, like if you broke an arm or broke a leg, mm-hmm. to immobilize it, that you know, put you in a cast. Yeah, but you can't really easily put a neck in a cast. No. So this is the alternative for the okay. neck. This is going to sound a really stupid question. Were you scared, and what were you scared of? Yeah, I don't think I was ever really. I wouldn't say scared, mm-hmm. but um, obviously the initial sort of shock of being told you've had a broken neck and the uncertainty um, for a number of days until um, just not knowing what the long-term prognosis would be mm-hmm. uh, for a number of days there. Uh, the doctors were sort of fearing the worst and you know, talking about um, not being able to walk and wheelchairs and this sort of stuff, which obviously is incredibly frightening. Yeah. Um, I guess through that, it sort of made me think at that point in time, and I was at this, this stage just still flat on, a, flat on a hospital bed staring at the ceiling, and made me sort of think of that sort of time if if this was it or if I can't if I you know if if that was it or if I was stuck wheelchair bound after that would I have been happy with what I've achieved in my life to that point mm-hmm. and uh, I guess sort of just thinking through that really made me realise that I'd put a lot of effort and um, focus on my professional career yeah and as a result of that um, pushed aside a lot of my own personal ambitions and challenges which I'd want to achieve personally so. Uh-huh. It was really through that moment, I guess, that I thought, well, if I can come through this, um, I'll start focusing on some of my personal ambitions. And one of them was to do some mountaineering. And that's where the concept of a good starting point would be Project 74. Right. Um, remarkable. What, so who did you tell first that this was your idea? I didn't tell many people to start with because probably <laughs> most people would have thought I was too insane at this yeah. stage. But yeah, I'm, yeah, I would have told you that was yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I did have a I had a close mate who actually climbed Everest in 2012. Mm-hmm. A good mate from school days, and he came and visited us, and um, yeah, gave me some nice uh, some nice words. And I guess he was probably the first one that I told that you know this is what I'm going to work towards. Yeah, I uh, didn't tell anyone else to be honest. Um, once I started doing a few of the practice climbs, uh, mm-hmm. so the first trip was Mount Aspiring in New Zealand, okay, and did a mountaineering course down there and. When I was sort of writing a blog and email updates and things, I actually named it Practice Run Number One. Right. And okay. uh, that was the subject line of the email. So family probably started to realise I was working towards something at that point right. in time. And then when it's, you know, number two, Practice Run Number Three, it was actually after Amit Blam when yeah. we'd done um, together with John, summoned Amit Blam. And I guess that was the first one, first trip we'd been to reasonable altitude and yeah. you know, fairly technical expedition. And, yeah, yeah. It's still quite uh, a serious so climb, isn't it? Absolutely, and probably you know, more more technical than Everest would be, and you know very very steep climbing, and mm-hmm. you're up at, you're up to six thousand eight hundred meters, or just short of seven thousand, and yeah, um, so it's that's you know, a serious mountain itself, and um, I was very happy with how um, 
how I performed on that mountain, you know, first time at proper altitude. And so after that one, I actually came out and um, did disclose after that what my actual true project intents were. Okay. And, and when you were doing these practice climbs, and, and I guess all the way through the project, were you, was it always in your mind of that decision that you'd made while you were in hospital? Were you always thinking, this is what I promised myself that I'm going to do? Is it, was that the driving force or what, did you just kind of get on with it? Um, no, it was sort of always in my mind. I guess in hospital, mm-hmm. I said, in terms the seven, pro, seven summits was a goal I set myself to try and work towards. And, you know, it took a number of years. But, you know, I, wanted, I told myself that I, through this accident, I want to come out of this fitter and stronger than I was before. And mm-hmm. I guess being able to achieve something like I've, what I've, um, you know, gone and do the seven summits uh, and all the work and both physical training and effort that went into that mm-hmm. um, just sort of reinforced what I'd want, you know, my initial goals I'd set myself from the times in hospital. Right. Okay. And and now, like I said, we, we spoke briefly about you, you want to go to the Himalayas, you know, that often after after these kind of accidents or you know time in hospital you, you you do set these goals and and you need to and that's part of the recovery process um and it's also some of your life your life goals as well and but what happens now <laughs> you know do you it, was there a sense of gosh i've done that now you know do, do you feel the need for another goal or are you settled into i've done that now i can you know, I'm recovered. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Like I said that through my through my injury, and I sort of I did need you know, it was very tough times and in a fairly bad way at the time, yeah. and uh, both physically and mentally. So the best way I found I could manage to deal with that was setting myself a goal and setting myself something to work towards. Yeah, yeah. And I think it definitely helped enormously. Sort of having this project seven and four, just like it's something out on the horizon. Yeah. While it took three years, three and a half years to get there, having that on the horizon. Mm-hmm. helped enormously um, through my rehab. And, yeah, once we actually completed it, and I can remember standing on the summit of Everest, and it was actually really bittersweet yeah. because yeah. it's so much, you know, it has the training, the preparation, the planning, just the thought, just the whole thought process for uh, going about the seven summers occupied, you know, so much of my time for the last three years. Mm-hmm. And knowing it was all coming, you know, that was basically the end of it. And yeah. it was really bittersweet. And, I guess for myself, I have, I am always quite goal-driven. Um, you know, prior to my accident, I did a lot of triathlons, and so a lot of my goals were focused around triathlon racing and things. And yeah. um, to not have a goal, to not have a purpose to, to go training each day, yeah. uh, I would I'd probably struggle with. So definitely coming straight back off the mountain. And like I said, we've been discussing some things with John and mm-hmm. not quite in a position to state publicly what our next goals are. Okay. But there's a few. Okay. The, the best way I find to deal with the... So the post-expedition blues, if you like, when you come down after a big trip, yeah, is to set another goal and uh, start working towards it. So that's what we're in the process of doing now. Okay, good. Okay, well, do let us know what that's going to be. Um, so you, you were doing you were you were doing triathlons and that kind of stuff. Was it? I guess has fitness always been part of your life? Have you always kind of pushed yourself physically? You know, from a kid, were you were you always sporty? Were you you know? Played cricket, well, you know, what, what, what did you do? What? Yeah, definitely. When we were younger, uh, we actually grew up on a farm, so we're just outdoors all the time. It's mm-hmm. never sort of sitting around in front of the computer or TV or anything. We're just outside running around. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my parents got me into scouting very young. Okay. So the scouting movement, I think, is absolutely incredible. So we went right through Cubs, Scouts, Venturers, yeah. and did a lot of outdoor activities with them. And right through my high, through high school days, 
I wasn't into heavy endurance sports, but mm-hmm. definitely did a lot of played rugby, played cricket. Um, yeah. Used to do a fair bit of sailing. And I was actually at the end of high school. Uh, bought my first bike and then started triathlon. Okay. Actually, okay. my first triathlon was on an old bike I borrowed off a friend. Okay. And uh, then bought. So it was the start of yeah end of high school that I uh, um, jumped jumped into triathlon. That's when I started uh, doing uh, proper serious endurance training. Right. Okay. And and again, was that 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 was always? I mean, that's another goal driven sport, isn't it? What were you always? Once you found triathlon, did you think I found I found my sport? I found what I want to do. Um, triathlon, I absolutely loved and uh, was took a, uh, competed quite competitively for particularly right through my uni days for about five years. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Australia, did was racing uh, every weekend through summer and mm-hmm. did that intensively, and it was fantastic at the time. Um, it hasn't, yeah, for me, well, I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, being a pure road based sport, I sort of always also loved just more out in the wilderness more as well. So sure, sure. I love the actual aspect of it but um yeah there's parts of it wasn't yeah like to mix it up with other activities as well okay and and i read that you were you were often in trouble as a kid is that right <laughs> uh we um i guess as a kid <laughs> a bit of a handful maybe like to uh like to push the boundaries a bit i guess and have okay. a bit of fun okay uh, <laughs> tried to stay on the right side of the law most of the times but uh <laughs> okay. as, as, as kids are growing up you just like to have a bit of fun and um, yeah, we're always outside running around, getting up to some sort of mischief when we could. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> those boys, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, <laughs> um, okay, well, one, I, I'm flitting around a little bit, but what, one question has just occurred to me: when you were doing the the seven in four, we we often concentrate on the peaks and the mountains and the climbs. Did you get much fulfilment from the travel? I mean. You travelled around the world, really, more than more than a lot of people. Were, were the bits in between as fulfilling as the bits on the top of the mountains? Yeah, and I think definitely with the what attracted me to Seven Summits, even before I'd done any climbs, mm-hmm. was just to be able to travel to such uh, remote places yeah. and experience such different cultures. And to me, that was just as fascinating as the climbing itself. Yeah. Um, and you know, you're talking places from you know to step foot down Antarctica. Yeah. Uh, wow. Where you get a Russian jet lands on a glacier down in or an ice runway down in Antarctica, and to step off in Antarctica was just that in itself was a dream come true. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, to step off the right continent, and then I said all the other places we've been to you know, Argentina. I've never been to Africa before, and that was mm-hmm. the culture there. The people were so friendly, always dancing, singing was absolutely remarkable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you know, West Papua different again. So I think you definitely enjoyed that just as much as. Um, as the climbing themselves, I think that's what's so enjoyable about the, about the, uh, the Seven Summits project. Yeah, yeah, and you you were raising money as well, weren't you? Yeah, so through I guess my accident and the affiliation I'd had with Surf Lifesaving and the volunteers that had helped me that day mm-hmm. and sustain a spinal injury uh, through doing this project, I wanted to give back to to those uh, causes. Mm-hmm. So we're raising money and awareness for Surf Lifesaving in Western Australia. Okay. And also Spinal Cure Australia. So Spinal Cure Australia are doing research to actually try and cure paralysis mm-hmm. um, and have some remarkable projects they're working on uh, with the intent, hopefully in, in a number of years, to have people uh, out of wheelchairs you know, potentially walking again, which is fascinating. So requires a lot of effort and a lot of funding for that research, but sure. um, wanted to help support that along with the surf life saving movement. Okay. And how much money have you raised so far? 
Uh, we raised about 45000 Australian dollars all up. So that was between donations to my site. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a group that came in, trekked into base camp, Everest Base Camp while we were there, yeah. and they all helped with the fundraising. And wow. halfway through the project, when we returned to Australia to climb Kosciuszko, we did that with a weekend together organised by Rotary. We had about 100 people in total and uh, wow. took six, uh, six wheelchair participants to the top of Kosciuszko wow. and did that as a fundraising weekend as well. So that... To be a part of that and to see the joy on particularly these kids in wheelchairs who to do something, you know, to get to the top of Australia. Yeah. Uh, to see the joy in that face and be a part of that was an absolute privilege. Yeah, good. That seems like a good place to stop. Thank you. Such a, a remarkable, inspirational story. It's, it's great to, you know, to see the, the fundraising aspect of it and, and, you know, sort of changing lives as well as your own. You know, it, it's, uh, yeah, very inspiring. So, Steve, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. (laughs) See, I told you it was an inspirational story. Thanks so much, Steve, for joining us all the way from Perth, Australia. And thank you for listening. Um, If you have the time, please go and leave a review on uh, wherever you get your podcast from. And join us again next month where we'll be talking to another athlete just to find out exactly what drives them, why they do what they do. Listen in.